we uh, are in a conversation. We began a conversation a couple of weeks ago looking at the the implications of the big idea in Christianity that Jesus is bigger, bigger than the problems in the world. And that's a particularly helpful thing to remember when the, the problems in the world are looming larger than they sometimes do. And that's been our situation all during 2020 and maybe in 2021 as well. So we've been looking at the questions or, or the implications of the idea Jesus is bigger uh, because the world is a messy place. And one of the ways the world is messy is that it, it leads to suffering. And in in the Bible language, the original language of the Bible, the word suffering was a big word. For us, suffering means to feel things that are negative, to, to feel pain or hunger, exhaustion, anxiety, depression. Those are ways we suffer. Um, but in in the Bible uh, language, it, it actually meant any kind of feeling. So even even positive feelings, p- pleasure and and excitement and things like that, they were all considered suffering. And the the book we've been looking at during this uh, conversation has been the the letter to the Hebrews. And we know in it that the, the people that it was addressed to were suffering, but they were probably suffering the way we would use the word. They were suffering probably in some negative way. So. Um, what we looked at last week is the question of if they if they were suffering, what did they uh, wh- what did the writer of the letter to the Hebrews have to say about it? And w- one of the things we we talked about last week, and if you if you haven't seen that, you can catch up online. But uh, it was this idea that in the first century, a very common perspective would have been that the nature of the material world, the material universe, is that there would be suffering here. And the best thing you could do is either just roll with it, let, let it kind of wash over you, or better yet, seek to transcend it. Um, this idea that that if you if you rose above it all, that that, that would be the best case. And and so there was this, this notion that if we could become like angels, if we could become spiritual beings and, and leave behind our, our crude matter, then that would be a better thing. And what we saw last week is that that's not the Christian perspective. The Christian perspective is not um, transcendence. It's not to transcend the material world. We believe that God loves the material world. He made it this way for a reason, and he made us the way we are. He did not make us angels because he didn't need more angels. He wanted us the way he um uh, had in mind when he designed us. So, so that's, that's the, the idea we looked at last week, that God is happy with us as material beings, that his intention is not for us to become angels. So that leaves us with the question, but what about suffering? And in particular, what about the negative suffering? I don't want to, to, uh, to feel pain. I don't want to be depressed. I don't want to be anxious. I don't want to have all the things that, um, that are feelings, uh, particularly the ones that are negative. So what is the Christian answer to the, the problem of suffering? And the answer that Christianity has given, the answer that the writer here is working from, is the idea of restoration. That the reason we suffer, the reason we have negative um, uh, suffering in particular, the what we call suffering, is because the world has gone off the rails. The world is is, is a mess, and God is restoring the world. So that's the big idea. And as for suffering, it makes a, a startlingly big claim, which is that God is redeeming everything in this world, not just not just um, the the good things that that are you know worth salvaging, but even the things that we might say, well, that's terrible. You know, I'll be happy to be rid of that. God promises to redeem everything. Jesus says, "Behold." 
I am making all things new. So even even things that bring us pain now, the the promise is that God will make those things that that uh, bring us joy. And I, I don't know how God's going to do that, but that's one of the promises of Christianity that God will, as part of this great work of restoration, that God will redeem everything in this world, including the the ways that we have suffered. So that's an amazing um, claim. But Christianity makes it an even more amazing claim, which is that that is not just something uh, off in the future. That's not you know someday you know we will we will arrive at this paradise and and everything will be wonderful there. The promise of Christianity is that it has already begun. That this work is underway. That God is not saying someday I'll get around to that. But in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that that work has actually been inaugurated and its completion has not arrived yet that Jesus will return and bring it to its 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 a full fullness but it is already at work so that's a that's another amazing claim that Jesus said that his kingdom uh the 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 kingdom of God is is like a um it's something that's hidden we don't perceive it uh um, because it's like a, a seed that's growing in the ground or like yeast that's in a batch of dough, that it's something you don't see except for its effects. You can tell it's there because of the effects that it has. And that's the promise that Jesus makes, that his kingdom has already been inaugurated and it's at work in the world, making the world a better place already, that it's not something we necessarily are going to have to wait for. And um, I could make the argument that the world is in fact getting better as a result of the presence of Jesus' kingdom. But I wouldn't be as good about it as uh, this guy, Tom Holland. He wrote a book. He uh, is not a believer himself, but he's a historian, and he wrote uh, a number of historical books about the ancient world. And one of the things that he came to realize is how much better our world is in in this many ways, however many ways he lists in here. It's an amazing book because he goes through talking about how the ancient world, the, the classical world that he's most familiar with, uh, is a not as good of a world as the world that the, the Christian uh, movement has brought about. So uh, the book Dominion by Tom Holland uh, goes into that. And so that's an amazing claim, too, that, that the world will be restored and that that restoration is already underway. But there's an even more amazing claim, and that is that we can be part of it. Jesus says that we can actually have access to that kingdom right now. He says, he says that the kingdom of God has come near. And if we uh, uh, repent of the ideas that somehow uh, we, we we need to figure out our own solutions for all of our problems, that that um, that there's no problem, that there's no solution to to suffering and things like that. If we if we rethink all those ideas, if we repent of those ideas or rethink them, then we can enter the kingdom of God. So. So that's what uh, we're going to look at today, that that this idea that the kingdom of God is not only present, but it's present for us. It's something we can actually have now. We don't have to wait for it, Jesus to return and for the kingdom of God to arrive in its fullness. So we're going to we're going to pick up where we left off last week. Last week we we were in chapter two, and so we're going to pick it right up in chapter three of the letter to the Hebrews. So beginning in verse one, we read, therefore. Therefore, in light of everything we've been talking about, uh, about the idea that that uh, Christians don't believe that we should transcend this world, but rather that God is restoring the world. Therefore, therefore what? Therefore, brothers and sisters who are partners in the heavenly calling. So he's speaking to Christians. 
He's saying people who have been called by God into this new uh, relationship. So uh, brothers and sisters who are partners in the heavenly calling. Now, I would actually interject here. This is one example, and I don't know if uh, Holland mentions it in his book, Dominion, but this is an example of the way the world is getting better because there is a, a new way of relating to other people that's not based on the, the, the country we come from or our, our race or our ethnicity or our gender or anything else. It's based on the fact that God has called us. And because of that, because it's nothing we can say, well, you know, that person, you know, you know, is or is not part of the group. We have to assume that God could call anyone. So I think this is something, the idea of a unity that comes from outside of us. That's one example among, you know, uh, uh, books full of examples of how the world has become a better place that, that the kingdom of God is already working itself out. But we're talking about how it's working for us, us, us who are partners in the heavenly calling. So what does he have to say about that? He says, what should we do? What, what, what should we do? Given the fact that they're suffering, given the fact that we're not expected to transcend this world, what should we do? Well, he says, think about Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. So that seems easy enough. Um, you know, it, it hasn't answered the question about, about, uh, uh, suffering, but it's saying, it's saying that, that we can think about Jesus. And, and if, again, we put ourselves in the position or the mindset of people in the first century, they might be thinking, okay, here's your job, okay? In light of the fact that God doesn't want such and such, now here's what you need to do about it. But he doesn't say that. Instead, he says, think about Jesus. Think about what Jesus did. That, that Christianity doesn't say that we have to perform sacrifices or or get rid of our bad behavior or or go to church every week or anything else. Uh, Christianity says we should think about Jesus. We should think about what Jesus has done. So what is it that Jesus has done? Why should we think about him? So verse 2, he says, pardon me, <clears throat> Jesus was faithful to the one who appointed him, just like Moses was faithful. Moses was faithful in God's house, but he, Jesus, deserves greater glory than Moses. Now, for us, we would say, you know, uh, we've had two thousand years to get used to this idea. We would say, of course, Jesus is greater than Moses. But in the first century, uh, the the writer to the letter here could not assume that people would have thought that, uh, because Moses is is a very big deal to to people who grew up uh, 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 with the Hebrew scriptures and and the stories of the nation of Israel. Uh, Moses is is really probably the preeminent figure, greater even than than. Um, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because they, they had a relationship with God and God promised that they would become a nation, but they never really did, not during their lifetimes. It wasn't until hundreds of years later when there was actually a nation of Israel that, that Moses could be the leader of. So if we think of, if we, you know, the, the closest comparison we would have is if somebody was like the, the best presidents on Mount Rushmore. So Washington and Jefferson and Lincoln and I guess Theodore Roosevelt too. Imagine rolling them all into to one, and that's the leader we're talking about. But but more than that, imagine that that leader that you've just imagined also wrote five books in the Bible. So so he's not just a political leader. He's not just the leader of the nation. He's also a religious leader that God has used to to do something. And in particular, he says what it was that Moses did. Moses led the people of Israel out of 
their their captivity or their 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 bondage in Egypt. They had been slaves in Egypt for hundreds of years, and Moses was the one that God used to bring them out. So he says, uh, Moses was faithful in God's house, but he, Jesus, deserves greater glory than Moses in the same way the builder of the house deserves more honor than the house itself. Every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses with faithful... Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant in order to affirm the things that would be spoken of later. But Jesus was faithful over God's house as a son. So he's saying that the, the, the idea that he's, he's communicating here is that Moses did some amazing things. Moses was an amazing leader. He, he has a great legacy. Not to take anything away from Moses, but if Moses built the nation of Israel, who built Moses? And the answer is God did. God, not just in the sense of God made everything, but God specifically called Moses. That that when Moses was a baby, God protected him so that he wouldn't be killed by by Pharaoh as a baby. God um, uh, protected him when he fled into the wilderness. God watched over him as he as he uh, tended the sheep of his father-in-law. And it wasn't until God called him at the burning bush, really, that Moses became. Moses. So God uh, told him, go into Egypt and, and uh, tell Pharaoh, let my people go. So God built Moses in that sense. The, the story of Moses, the house of Moses, is really something that God has done. And he's saying that if Moses uh, built a house, God built Moses. And he says more than that, Moses was faithful to his calling. God, God told Moses to do this, and he was faithful to it. But he was faithful as a servant, whereas Jesus was faithful as a son. Jesus is on the inside. Jesus, uh, we, we talked about this in the first week of our conversation. One of the things we learned there is that Jesus uh, was, that the the creation and, and the plan of redemption was not something God the Father cooked up by himself, that it was something that, that God did in union with the, the God, God the Son. The eternal Son was a co uh, developer of the plan of salvation. So um, he's saying that Jesus, as the Son of the Father, was equally involved. So he was on the inside. He made those decisions along with God the Father to call Moses. So he's saying that it's a different category of, of, of person, that Moses was great, but Jesus is greater. So Moses is is great, and he says, but Jesus still is greater than, than Moses. And he says, we, we, us brothers and sisters of the heavenly calling, uh, partners in the, in the heavenly calling, he says, we are his house. We are Jesus's house. That Moses was the, the, the builder of the house of Israel, but we are builder, we, we are, um, the, 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 the greater house of this greater, um, figure than, than Moses. So he says, we're, we are part of that. And he says, he says, we are, we are that if, if, if what? And the answer is, if we hold on to the confidence and pride that our hope gives us. If we hold on to the confidence and pride that our hope gives us. So what does he mean by that? Isn't pride a bad thing? Well, it often is. Pride can be very ugly, uh, and it can lead to arrogance as well. But pride at its root simply means that it, it means recognizing that what you have is better than something you don't have. It means, uh, I can be, I can be proud 
of getting an A in a class instead of an F because an A is better. Now, where it where it turns ugly, where it becomes uh, uh, sinful, is when I say, because I got an A, I'm a better person than that person over there who got an F. Or maybe in my case, um, uh, uh, because I got a C, I'm better than the person who got an F. But but that's the, the ugly kind of pride. But to, to recognize that one is better than the other, there's nothing wrong with that, saying, yes, I would rather have a, a C than an F. So that's that's the kind of pride he's talking about. He's saying, recognizing that Jesus is, in fact, greater than Moses. And what he offers, the liberation that he offers, is better than Moses. That's that's pride. And what is confidence? It's leaning into that. It's saying, and because of that, I can make decisions. I can act on that that evaluation, that, that this is better. And because of that, I'm going to lean into this. So, we are his house if we hold on to the confidence and the pride that our hope gives us. And then he he decides, the, the writer decides, we need to understand this by way of analogy. If we think back to what Moses did, that'll help us understand better what um, what Jesus is doing, that we can compare the two, recognizing that what Jesus did is greater. So, um, so he goes back to the story of the Exodus, and instead of instead of leading them through the books of Exodus and Numbers, where where those stories are are told, he he refers to one of the Psalms in which it's kind of the the Cliff Notes version of of the story of the Exodus. So uh, we're reading now from uh, Psalm ninety five, and he says, "So as the Holy Spirit says, so so as the Holy Spirit uh, uh, guided the psalmist to to summarize the story of the Exodus." He says, today, if you hear his voice, if you, the people of God, hear God's voice, don't have stubborn hearts as they did in the rebellion on the day when they tested me in the desert. That is where your ancestors challenged and test me, though they had seen my work for 40 years. So I was angry with them. I said, their hearts always go off course and they don't know my ways. Because of my anger, I swore they will never enter my rest. So he refers to this story from the Hebrew scriptures about the um, the people of God and how God liberated them uh, using Moses to to confront Pharaoh. So he says, if you hear his voice, um, then don't um, don't ignore it. Don't don't be stubborn. Don't have stubborn hearts the way they did in the rebellion. So what he's referring to. If you know the story of the the Exodus, is God liberated them? God brought them out of Egypt. God led them through the the Red Sea, right up to the boundary of the Promised Land. So God had done everything God promised to do, but when they got to the Promised Land, they stopped. They stopped at the front door and they said, "Hmm, not so sure about this." And so what they did instead of going in is they sent in spies. They sent in some spies who were to look over the land and make sure it was a good place to go. And what the spies reported back is, oh, this is a great place. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. They said it's a wonderful place. There's only one problem. It's filled with giants. We could never take them on because they would, they would destroy us. And so, so they, they turned around. They chickened out. Instead of going in, they said, you know what? I don't want to face any giants. I'm not going to deal with that. And they turned around. And that's what he's referring to here. He says, if you hear his voice, if God is leading you into the promised land, don't have stubborn hearts as they did in the rebellion, the day they tested me in the desert. And they, they didn't just test him in the desert because they turned around and God said, okay, well, look, you can't go back to Egypt and you... 
won't go into the promised land, so you're stuck here in the wilderness. So God led them around in the wilderness for 40 years until that generation, the the generation that had been afraid to go in, uh, had died off. And so God had the chance to work with them for 40 years, and they kept doing this. It wasn't just a single day of rebellion. It was really 40 years of rebellion that they just would not trust God, that they, they assumed that God was not up to the challenges of taking them through all of the, the trials that, that, that would be part of coming into the promised land. So, so that's the, that's the analogy that the, the writer wants us to be aware of as he tells us about the, the, the greater liberation that Jesus has done. So he says, he says, don't be like them. God has led you to this new, better promised land. God has led you right up to the kingdom of God. And the big question for you is, Will you go in? So, um, will you go in? And that's really the question for us is, will we go into the kingdom of God? Because Jesus said it's available. Jesus said it's right here uh, uh, um, among us. The question is, will we go in? And uh, maybe the first question that somebody has, particularly people who are not Christians, people who are still not sure what they believe about Christianity, they may be saying, but but I can't see it. In fact, you're telling me it is a secret kingdom, that, that nobody can see it. And, and that's true. But notice what it says here in this psalm, and maybe this is the reason that the, the writer chose it. He says, if you hear his voice, um, if you have seen his work, so, so if you hear his voice, don't be stubborn. Um, they challenged me though they had seen my work. So, so God is not saying that you just have to have a blind leap of faith. God is talking about if, if you have seen enough evidence to convince yourself, if you have heard the voice of God in a way that made sense to you, then don't be stubborn. What he's saying is don't, don't keep moving the goalposts. So if, if you're not sure what you believe about Christianity, if you're not sure if you are a Christian or you should be a Christian, ask yourself, what would it take to convince you? What would God have to do to persuade you that, that he existed and that he loved you and wanted you to enter his kingdom? What would that be? And, and maybe you should write it down because that way, if God provides it to you, you won't be tempted to to uh, shift the goalposts and say, "Well, yeah, but what I really meant was, you know, further and further levels of, of convincing." So he says, "Don't be stubborn." But this is a this is a question for when you do have the evidence that you find persuasive. So, so what should you do? He says, he says, enter the promised land. Don't be like the people who turned around. Instead, enter into this greater promised land, this, this greater kingdom. So, so you can't see it. You just have to accept it is here. Jesus promised that it was here. And it is, it is already, the, the, the salvation he intends for us is already at work in this kingdom. And it can be ours, but we have to enter into it. So how do we enter into it? Well, I'm struck by two of the instructions that that he gives us here. The first one is the the negative instruction. God tells the the people of of the um, the Exodus. He says they will never enter my rest. That they just can't be persuaded, and so they're just going to have to die off. And a new generation that that trusts me better will will enter my rest. This idea of rest and originally the idea was that you've been a slave in Egypt. Everybody you know has been a slave in Egypt. For hundreds of years, all your ancestors have been slaves in Egypt. You don't know what rest is. Rest is when the master's not looking. 
that that um, other than that, you are always on duty, you are always at work, and there is no rest for you. So God calls them into the promised land, and he says, he says, take a rest. In fact, he mandates it. He says, he says, you're going to have to farm. You know, it's a land flowing with milk and honey, but you've got to go milk the cows and, and milk the bees or whatever you do with bees. You've got to get that honey out of the, the cows and the bees. You've got to, you've got to have a farm. There's still work to do. And so you may have the, the mindset of a slave and you'll say, well, I've just got to work, work, work from dawn till dusk. And God is saying, no, rest. I, I commit to you that if you work six days a week, then I will take care of the seventh. So that's a commitment that God makes. And he says, you rest. And uh, that that's something that characterizes the kingdom of God, that it is an even greater rest, that that yes, uh, it's it's all around us. And yes, that means that there are uh, the problems that, that are part of this world, uh, we still have to milk our cows or whatever we have to do, but, but we can rest. The writer John Ortberg says, sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do, he, he, he wrote a book on spiritual disciplines, and he said, sometimes the single most spiritual thing you can do is take a nap. Because, because we don't rest. And so the first thing is, is, if you want to enter the kingdom, maybe the first thing you need to do is say, I need to enter some rest. And that means physical rest. You know, you may be exhausted, but it also means to, to cease striving, to, to chill out, to, to just relax and let God do some of the work instead of figuring we've got to do it all. So, so, um, it means, it means having not just not just physical rest but emotional rest having peace uh, so 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 ask yourself what would give me peace how how can i find peace and maybe it means for you you've got to quit worrying about something lord knows there have been plenty of things in the last year that we have worried about we've worried about uh, uh, the the civil government and what's going to happen um uh, with this new administration, how, how things are going to roll out after the election and with the, the, um, inauguration of our president. How are, how, how is the pandemic going to continue to unfold, especially now that we've been hearing about new strains in different places? So how's that going to roll out? What's going to happen to the economy as we continue in these, uh, uh, very fitful starts and, and shutdowns? Uh, how's that going to roll out? We've had plenty of things to be anxious about, to be worried about. But one of the things we can do in the kingdom of God is we can quit worrying. We can say, you know what? God has got that problem solved. And I don't know what it is, but God's going to ask me to do no more than one-sixth of it. God's going to give me some rest. So we don't have to be anxious about that. And maybe for you, the, the, the things you're anxious about, the things that you're, you, you, you obsess over are closer to home. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's your personal finances. Maybe it's something going on in your own life. How, how you relate to substances. Maybe it's something in your sexuality. God invites us into the kingdom, this secret kingdom where there is rest. So don't be anxious about these things. We don't have to be anxious about all the things that, that are part of this this world because we are part of the kingdom of God. The second thing I noticed in here is he says in verse 12, he says, watch out brothers and sisters so that none of you have an evil, unfaithful heart that abandons the living God. Instead, encourage each other every day as long as it's called today so that none of you become insensitive to God because of sin's deception. We are partners with Christ, but only if we hold on to the confidence we had in the beginning until the end. So he says, he says, 
watch out because there there are dangers in in the kingdom. The kingdom is not someplace else where there's a, a fixed border and nothing bad can come in. This is not paradise. Someday Jesus will return. And at that point, the the, the kingdom will be fully uh, uh, manifest. It will be visible. We'll be able to see it. And it will have um, the, the promise that there will be no more sources of pain or, or sorrow or grief or or the crying of children, that that everything will be good in that future day. But in the meantime, we're in the invisible kingdom. We're in the kingdom where there are still giants in the land, just as the people in the Exodus saw, that they, they said, it is a good land, but there are giants in it. And they were afraid. And this is telling us, don't be afraid. It says, encourage each other, because everybody's got different giants. For you, you know, uh, I don't think any of us have Philistines anymore, but but whatever whatever things make you anxious, those things that, that you need rest from, sometimes you won't be able to rest. They will just be bothering you too much. And we need to encourage one another. We need to be like those two spies who said, who said, no, this is, this is actually a good land. And, and yes, there's giants. You're not kidding yourself. There really are giants, but God's there too. And God has already seen us through all these problems. God will take care of us in the land where there's giants. So he says, encourage each other every day. This is a great, this is a great statement here because, because the, the, the Israelites, when they were led to the boundary of the promised land, it was like you go in or you turn around. That was the only choice. The the thing here is keep doing this every day. That, okay, yesterday was a disaster. I chickened out. I, I fled. Um, but today's a new day. Uh, morning by morning, God's mercies are new. So he says, encourage each other every day as long as it's called today until Jesus returns and and ushers in his kingdom in its fullness. Until then, Encourage one another. Be the Caleb. Be the Joshua. Um, or let the Joshua or the Caleb encourage you. That's that's what he's inviting us to do. Because there are going to be giants in the in this in in the kingdom we're part of. As long as it's in the same physical space as the the world, there's going to be problems. But uh, but at some point that will no longer be true, and this will truly be a, a material world. But it will be paired paradisal. It will be like paradise. And until then, we need to keep encouraging each other. We need to be like Joshua and Caleb. This is really the work of the church. This is something that, that we're called to as Christians. We need to we need to live out the the confidence and pride as he talked about in this hope we have that that um, this is a world with suffering, but we can already be part of the kingdom of God, where God is already at work um, redeeming our suffering, where God is already at work restoring creation. So we can be part of that. We need to live that out um, in our own lives by encouraging one another. And that's our role as the church. But it's also something we can do by by living that way, by living in the confidence of this hope, by experiencing it personally, we can actually be the church for the world. And people who are standing off on the side, wondering, was that a voice I just heard? Uh, Was that a work of God that I just saw? that they will look at us and say, maybe it was, that we can actually have a role in helping people to hear the voice of God in helping them to see what God is doing in the world. The kingdom of God is available to us now. It's not something we have to wait for, but it will be worth it will be worth whatever time we spend in the mean, until it arrives in its fullness. 
that that we we don't have to wait for it, but it will be even better when it arrives in its fullness. And we can have it all. We we can have it all, but in the meantime, we should encourage one another. We should rest, and we should encourage each other. Let's pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you for the promise that your kingdom is already available to us. Um, Lord, because it is an invisible kingdom and because this world is filled with suffering, uh, we we can lose heart. We can have an evil, unfaithful heart that abandons the living God. So so keep us close to people who will encourage us. Help us to grow closer with uh, the body of Christ here in this world, the, the church, that we can all encourage each other every day, and we do not become insensitive to what you're doing. Lord, we pray for people who aren't sure if they did hear your voice or have seen your work. Lord, we pray for them that that they would have um, uh, the, the clarity they need to respond to the the opportunities that you present before us, that we can become part of your kingdom. Lord, that they can share in the calling. Lord, we, we ask all these things in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.